It is uh, my pleasure to invite to uh, introduce this first uh, session. Uh, we're delighted to uh, host uh, Yanis Marinogos uh, from, from Greece, a writer with Cathy Marini. Uh, Yanis was educated in the UK, uh, but at a university called Oxford. <laughs> uh, and uh, nevertheless, he took uh, politics, uh, he took PP, politics, philosophy, and economics. He also then uh, proceeded to an MPhil in philosophy. And uh, he is currently, as I've indicated, a features reporter for Cathy Marini, the main quality newspaper in Greece. And he's contributed to a number of international uh, magazines. He's here, of course, because uh, he is presenting his uh, book. The Thirteenth Labour of Hercules, and I will be asking you later to uh, how many of you can remember the previous twelve labours of Hercules. Uh, but uh, he's here to talk about uh, the book. And in response to Yanis's presentation, I will say a few words, and uh, we're delighted also to have uh, Philippe Legrain uh, here to respond. Philippe is a senior policy advisor. More importantly than that, he is a visiting fellow at the European Institute at the London School of Economics. And in fact, he's a graduate of the LSE. Uh, he has been the economic advisor to President Barroso and the European Commission. Uh, he was chief economist and then director of policy for the organization Britain in Europe. Uh, he has been a special advisor to the World Trade Organization and uh, before that the trade and economics correspondent for The Economist magazine. Uh, he's a regular contributor to uh, UK and international uh, media. Philippe has his own uh, book which was published not so long ago uh, called European Spring, Why Our Economies and Politics Are in a Mess and how to put them right. So surely, with the conflation of Yanis Palilogos talking about Greece and Philippe uh, Legrand talking about Europe and how to get out of the crisis, uh, we can assure you, without any doubt whatsoever, that by 8 o'clock this evening, when we must finish, we will be answering all of those questions which you have in mind about the crisis and how to exit. Before I invite... Um, Yanis to, to speak. Let me simply make one reference to the program of the Hellenic Observatory here at the LSE. You can see that Yanis is speaking uh, and being hosted by the Hellenic Observatory. We have a regular series of uh, speakers uh, coming to the uh, school to speak on Greek topics. And in fact, uh, next Monday, we have another book launch we seem to be uh, supporting a, a veritable library of books on Greece at the moment. Uh, but next Monday, we will have uh, Sotiris Sartaluthis, a lecturer in politics at Loughborough University, talking about the impact of the European employment strategy in Greece and Portugal. Please also bear in mind that typically every Tuesday evening, uh, in alternate weeks, we have visiting speakers in a research seminar on Greece uh, and in politics, economics, uh, sociology, etc. 
And we will also have a number of uh, keynote uh, lectures during the academic year. Costas Simitis, the former Prime Minister, will be speaking uh, here in December. Uh, before that, in November, we have two events. One uh, is with His Eminence Bishop Ignatius Volus, talking about the Orthodox religion and the economic crisis, what the Church's response in Greece should be to the economic crisis. And we will also have a panel discussion uh, in November, uh, which is uh, comprising senior academics uh, from uh, the United States, talking about the question of what is modern about modern Greece. Uh, Statis Kalivas from Yale University, Molly Green from Princeton University, and Vasilis Lambropoulos from Michigan University will be here to kick us off with a panel discussion about modernity and its changes in the Greek context. So basically, I simply wanted to emphasize that the Hellenic Observatory here at the LSE you can go on the website and you will see a regular series of events and speakers, typically every alternate Tuesday evening, and then a series of uh, keynote lectures by uh, prominent public uh, figures. So that's the advertisement over with. Let me now ask Yanis to speak. And of course, you will be wanting to buy the book, that's why you're here, or that's why we, that's why we think you're here. And uh, you will have the opportunity of buying Yanis' book uh, immediately outside the lecture theatre here. Let me say it will be sold at a remarkable, persuasive discount. <laughs> and uh, also, following this lecture, you're going to be invited to a wine reception which takes place immediately outside this room as well. And I know that Yanis will be happy to discuss informally in that wine uh, reception. Depends whether they've bought the book. <laughs> yes, yes. If you approach with a book in one hand and a wine glass in the other, we can expect a good dive. So, uh, what's going to happen? I'm going to ask now Yanis to speak for a maximum of 30 minutes, and then we're going to, uh, Philippe and I are going to respond, and then we're going to open up with questions and answers. There should be plenty of time for you to make your contributions, comments, uh, questions. But please join me in welcoming our keynote speaker for this evening, Yanis Palio. I should say you need the microphone because it is uh, going to be recorded. Okay. You might bear that in mind when you give your answers. <laughs> sure, we're on the record. Okay. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'll just say a very few uh, words in the beginning about uh, how and why I came to write this book and uh, especially why I wrote it in English. Uh, it all started with the crisis which uh, crept up on us in 2009, uh, which uh, turned the world's attention uh, to Greece and it led uh, reporters from all over the planet to uh, to come to Greece and try to, to figure out what went so spectacularly wrong. And many of them wrote some very good stories, aired some very good stories, uh, even went places that the Greek media uh, was prevented for various reasons from going. Uh, but uh, there were also lots of uh, really terrible stories which were based on the flimsiest uh, reporting imaginable. 
Um, and I thought I could contribute something to the uh, international conversation, and it also gave me a chance to uh, reacquaint myself with English, which was the language I grew to love as an undergraduate. Unfortunately, not at the LSE. <laughs> I tried, but only Oxford would take me. Um, and uh, so I started writing uh, articles for the American Prospect, which was a magazine in the U.S. Uh, on Greece and European affairs, uh, culminating in a, in a 3,000-word essay on, on the Greek problem at the end of 2011. And uh, at that point, the idea of a book had begun uh, sort of shuffling around in my mind. Uh, but uh, the work I was doing at the time didn't allow me to research it as, as well as I wanted to. But by April 2012, uh, I decided for a number of reasons that I would uh, actually quit my job and it gave me all the time I needed to start uh, working on the book. Um, so April 2012, that was a very perilous time for, for Greece. Um, a few days later, uh, at the May 6 election of that year, uh, the two main parties of government, Nedmogatia uh, and Pasok, uh, had uh, lost between them 45 percentage points of the support they had back in uh, uh, October 2009, which was the last uh, pre-crisis election. Um, the, uh, uh, a coalition of leftists uh, that have become known throughout the world since uh, uh, Syriza were catapulted into second place in that election uh, on the back of their uncompromising rejection of uh, austerity, the austerity mandated by the, the Troika programs uh, of, uh, agreed between Greece and its uh, official lenders, the EU, the IMF, and the ECB. Um, and uh, Syriza had all the momentum at the time, and it was very hard to see how their uh, commitment to tear up the, the memorandum, the agreement between Greece and its creditors could be squared with uh, the uh, demands in Berlin and elsewhere uh, that uh, all the agreements be kept to the letter. And of course, even more shocking in that election was the rise of Golden Dawn, a, a Nazi-style party uh, made up of thugs, racists, and uh, junta enthusiasts, which went from a completely marginal force in Greek politics to 7% to of the vote and uh, 21 MPs in, in Parliament. Um, and uh, the negotiations at the time to form a government failed, and a new election was called for June 17. And everyone uh, at the time in Greece and beyond were asking uh, the same question, uh, would Greece stay uh, in the euro or would she go? Um, I started writing the book in September uh, 2012, uh, and at that time uh, there was a three-party pro-bailout government in Greece led by Nea Demokratia. Uh, but our position in the Eurozone was still not quite secure. There were people still talking about maybe we should go, it would be better for us and better for them. Uh, I finished the bulk of it in April 2013, and at that time things were looking better. Uh, Grexit was no longer discussed. Very ugly word, uh, and uh, Greece could dimly see the end of its long recession on the horizon and the, the possibility of the end of its exile from the from the bond markets. But of course, the social situation was terrible. There was uh, very very high unemployment, uh, above 27 percent at that point. Um, there was uh, the, the social structures and and healthcare had collapsed basically in the country, um, and of course uh, growth uh, pro growth reforms needed to uh, get the Greek economy going again on, on day after the crisis were were stalling at the time. 
Um, so uh, fast forward again to today, 18 months later, this, the, the, uh, this evolution has, has continued. Um, Greece has managed through a tremendous effort to achieve, to basically to balance its books despite its long recession. So it has a primary surplus now for the second year running. And next year it's projected that we, it will nearly have a, a balanced budget. Um, and it's going to post growth for the first time this year since 2007. Um, and it's been tapping the bond markets again, sort of uh, here and there, although the developments in the last few days have not been very optimistic on that front, uh, I have to say. Uh, on the other hand, unemployment has barely budged uh, downwards. Uh, poverty and social deprivation are uh, more rampant than ever. And of course, the reform momentum of this government has basically uh, seems to have uh, died. Uh, with that very short uh, introduction, I'd like to introduce uh, very briefly, I promise, seven themes that I think emerge from, from the book, which explain how we got here and where we go uh, from here. Uh, the first of these themes is the uh, invisible rot uh, of the institutions of governance in Greece, which began way before 2009. Um, and of course, invisible may not be uh, quite right, because uh, to anyone who uh, gave a considered look, it was clear what was going on. But uh, in the climate of euphoria of the previous decade, the climate of uh, high growth rates and low interest rates and uh, you know, uh, an eruption of bank credit and hosting the Olympics and winning the Euro, uh, no one really wanted to look at the, the dark side too much. So you know, half measures were, were hailed as major reforms. And, Minimal efforts to cut spending were, were blasted as neoliberal by the, uh, by the prevailing consensus. And the few serious efforts at the reform, like the Yanitsis proposal for pensions, were easily defeated by uh, a combination of social, uh, political, and media opposition. And of course, that meant that uh, the longer the problems were ignored, the, the greater the, the decay. Uh, and um, Basically, partisanship and, and clientelism and corruption seeped through everything, and it, it made a mockery of meritocratic standards in the public sector, and it uh, 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 undermined the continuity in the running of the state-owned firms. Uh, it created prejudicial practices in, in procurement and in uh, regulation of businesses. Um, it made everyone mistrust the state, basically, and that meant that when the time came for the hard task of fixing the public sector and opening up the, the crony capitalist economy, uh, the task was much harder because no one trusted uh, the government to do it. Uh, and this brings me to my second theme, and my second theme is called the political lag. Nedmogadia uh, and Pasok, as we saw earlier, uh, saw their support collapse in, in 2012. Uh, and the reason was that they were rightly seen as the architects of Greece's ruin, but they were also the ones between 2009 and 2012 that took up the burden of passing the difficult measures to prevent Greece's uh, disorderly default and exit from the Eurozone. So that was part of the anger uh, directed at them. Um, and this points to the problem uh, on the political scene, which is that PASOK, for example, which has lost, if you count the recent European elections as well, uh, has lost more than four-fifths of, of its electoral support uh, since 2009. Um, uh, and nevertheless, it has been continuously in power since then. It, it was only not part of the government in the six weeks of the two of the caretaker government of, of Panagiotis Pekaramenos in 2012, and has been part of every government since 2009. Nea Democratia supported the Papadimos government starting November 2011, 
and has been the main party of government since June 2012. Now, uh, to put it mildly, these two parties are not very persuasive as, as agents of reform. Uh, you know, they, they, to their credit, they did, they did what they had to do to keep us uh, in there. But even then, the policy mix was often skewed towards protecting their uh, preferred client groups at the expense of less uh, politically connected groups. And especially in the last few months, uh, what we've seen is that uh, um, the MPs of the two parties have lost all taste for any kind of you know, unpopular but necessary reform. Uh, of course, you might say you know, there's no problem with that because we have uh, a progressive left-wing party uh, that's ready to take over and that is uh, unburdened by a legacy of misrule and that has a mandate to fix the, the crooked structures of Greek capitalism. I wish I could believe that. Uh, I would vote for them with both hands, uh, but only one vote. Because <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, the way I see Syriza, uh, unfortunately, again, I say, uh, is as a combination of a sort of stale uh, statist uh, ideology and uh, an all too familiar embrace of every grievance of every group in society. And given the way things have been going the past five years, that means every group in society, period. Uh, now, Alexis Tsipras has made some efforts to tone down the rhetoric and to say more reasonable and rational things, especially when he speaks on the international stage. And he has some uh, sane and capable people around him, uh, whom I think will take over the important posts uh, if and when Syriza is in government. Uh, on the other hand, uh, my concern is that the, there's a very strong left wing within Syriza which is very vocal about uh, developments it perceives as selling out, and that Tsipras himself, when he speaks at home, makes a lot less sense than he does when he speaks abroad. And the question is what will happen when the self-styled first left-wing government uh, of Greece uh, has to make its first difficult compromises, how, how this will work within the party. So, you know, to sum this up, uh, the, um, the politics have lagged behind the economic change that, that the Troika has pushed us to, to implement. And I think things won't improve in that front until we have uh, both potential governing parties really committed to pro-European anti-clientelist policies, which don't threaten to blow up the budget and, and to bring us into, into conflict with our European partners. Uh, now, the third theme, which is, uh, in the meantime, until that happens, is going to create a lot of problems in Greece, is what I call the tax pendulum. Um, everybody knows that in Greece, uh, the, the main problem that led to the fiscal disaster was tax evasion. Uh, so the spending levels as a percentage of GDP were always below uh, Eurozone averages, but they caught up only at the end of the, of the Karamanlis years, Costas Karamanlis. Uh, but tax, uh, the, the tax intake was always much, much lower. And it, uh, that was covered by borrowing. And then at some point, the borrowing stopped and disaster ensued. Um, uh, in the beginning of the crisis, the, the PASOK government, with the help of the IMF know-how, uh, made an effort to um, uh, create a structure to combat uh, large-scale tax evasion and tax avoidance among uh, individuals and companies. But of course, given the fact that there was very little uh, there to, to build on, uh, that was bound to take time. And this was a fact, of course, that was conveniently forgotten by politicians pre-crisis who always said, you know, they promised everything in terms of spending, and then they said, we find the revenue by fighting tax evasion, which, of course, they never did. 
Um, but anyway, uh, the effort began, and it, would, it went slowly. It made, you know, holding efforts. Uh, but meanwhile, the government needed revenue to, to fill the holes and achieve the Troika targets. And that meant that it raised rates on everything, on property, of course, but also labor, fuel, uh, road tax, uh, anything that moves, swam, or, you know. Uh, and this meant that in the context of a crushing recession with uh, uh, incomes collapsing, uh, uh, many people were left uh, unable to actually pay, even people who, were, who had been honest taxpayers before. Um, and this made them very angry at the government and at its foreign supervisors. And the, the latest property tax, Enfia, is a case in point of this. is a tax that's being levied, levied this year for the, for the first time. Um, What's happened there is that, uh, for a number of reasons, this tax has been imposed in a very different way according to, to different property owners, depending on what kind of property they own or uh, what uh, geographic location it's, it's at. Uh, and it's fall fallen very, very heavily on some. Uh, and there's a lot of outrage. But in all the outrage, what's forgotten is the fact that buyers and sellers of property in Greece for many years connived to underreport the value of their deals in order to pay less tax into the public coffers. Uh, and now, of course, that the, the market is depressed and commercial values are lower than the objective value set by the ministry, they can't pay the, the property tax. Uh, the pendulum has swung decisively and, and painfully. Uh, and the more depressing bit that I'm keen to talk about afterwards, if you want, uh, is uh, the fact that the, the effort to build an independent tax service, independent of politics, which will be able to make sure that everyone pays their, uh, pays their fair share and that, therefore, the rates can be reduced on everyone. This was dealt a very heavy blow last summer when the, the government forced the, the first head of the Secretariat of Revenue to resign. Uh, and as I said, we can talk more about that later. Now, uh, on the other side of the fiscal coin, another reason for anger and a sense of injustice and the unequal distribution of, of the burdens of adjustment is uh, what I call the welfare breakdown. Um, now, the welfare system in Greece was never too equitable or, or effective, uh, but at least uh, pre-crisis, um, in combination with informal net networks based on Greece's strong families, it made sure that uh, very few people were left indigent or without basic uh, medical care. This has uh, deteriorated dramatically since 2010. Uh, uh, the reason was brutal cuts imposed by the Troika, but also administrative weaknesses in the system, which meant that the implementation made things even worse, especially in healthcare. Uh, I recently interviewed the chief economist of, of the World Bank uh, uh, for Kathimerini, and he told me that uh, in looking into the data for Greece, he was uh, surprised at how poorly the country takes care of the lowest quintile, the lowest 20% of its population. And he said it was very unusual for an advanced economy to be uh, to have such poor care for, for the bottom 20 percent. Uh, this, of course, should be priority number one for any government. Uh, no one should have their access to medical care dependent on their, on their employment status. Uh, people who are insured but hard-pressed should not have to struggle to pay out of pocket for their medicine. And uh, there should be great effort and money expended on, on more support for the unemployed because the, the situation there is dramatic. Uh, more than 70% of the unemployed are long-term unemployed and only a very, very tiny sliver of, of those people get any income support at all. 
And there, policymakers policymakers need to they need to spend more money. Uh, they need to uh, think creatively and to make sure that uh, the the benefits are targeted to the ones who truly need it. Uh, this will take time for the government to get its act together. Uh, and until then, I'm sort of heartened to see that there are voluntary associations and initiatives that have um, uh, cropped up and are, are helping alleviate uh, the situation for the for the most needy. Um, <coughs> But of course, uh, for a real improvement, for incomes to rise and unemployment to fall, you need growth. Uh, and growth, and I mean here not a dead cat bounce, as it's called by economists, rather delightfully, uh, but uh, the, the, the fully animated leap of the, of the living feline. Uh, in order to, to get that, uh, what you need is a, a strong private sector. And that, of course, in Greece was also part of the problem. We sometimes forget that. Uh, the private sector was in productive decline in Greece for a long time before the crisis. Uh, Greece amassed a huge current account deficit, uh, which reached 15% of GDP in, in 2008. Um, and uh, the reason was that basically after it lost the ability to devalue with the euro uh, and uh, large amounts of money flowed in from German and French banks, but also from Greek banks, and this fueled an orgy of government spending and, and household consumption. But uh, it was a growth model that was very, very problematic. Uh, Greece imported a lot, exported little, was very low in rankings of foreign direct investment, was very low in the, the World Bank's doing business reports. And it basically uh, spent next to nothing on R&D, including the business uh, community. It was a country of closed profession, uh, professions and national contractors. And of course, when, the, when austerity came, uh, that uh, greatly reduced consumption. And in an economy so dependent on consumption, that meant that we would have a recession. Uh, but the hope was that the structural reforms that would be put in place as part of the, of the program would open up the economy, would foster innovation and competition, uh, and uh, would allow investment to flow in from outside and, and, and the growth would come from there. Uh, I have to say, you know, it's looking rather bleak on, on that front. Uh, the, um, you've had some minor marginal changes which have made it easier for, for people to, to start a business. Uh, there's been a slight uptick in exports, but not enough to, to really get the economy going. Uh, the closed professions have been opened I don't know how many times, and then they close up again somehow. Uh, it's really it's, it's a mystery that someone should look into. And despite many laws to streamline investment proceedings, uh, it remains extremely, it remains extremely a, a very lengthy process, very difficult for a major investment to, to go through. And the judicial system is a big problem there. Uh, the national oligarchs uh, continue to rule the roost. Uh, uh, foreign investment has stayed away. Uh, and uh, that means that the economy hasn't opened up either from within or to investors without. And that's a huge problem because uh, in, in a situation of continued fiscal stringency in the next few years, and given the fact that Greece is not going to become an export-led economy within five or even ten years, if ever, um, growth must come from uh, private investment, and that private investment doesn't seem to be, to be coming. That was, by the way, the fifth thing, I believe. <laughs> um, but... Uh, the lack of openness in Greece is not just about uh, closed professions and uh, problematic investment proceedings. Uh, it's a much wider problem. Greece's crisis was not 
uh, only economic or even primarily uh, economic, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that lack of openness. Uh, the heading of this theme is borrowed from an illustrious teacher of this institution. It's called The Open Society and Its Enemies. Um, there's a famous uh, exchange between Konstantinos Karamanlis, the elder Karamanlis, uh, the good one, uh, <laughs> and Andreas Papandreou in, in Parliament in the late 70s. Um, and uh, they're talking about uh, entry into the European Economic Community, which uh, was Karamanlis' lifelong project and which Papandreou and Pasok at the time uh, vociferously opposed. And at some point, Karamanlis interrupts Papandreou and says, um, uh, you know, it's a question of where we belong, Greece belongs to the West. And, and uh, Papandreou turns to the gallery and says, you know, I would rather Greece belong to the Greeks. And everyone applauds insanely, you know. Uh, and this is a very telling slogan which unites Greeks of all political stripes across generations. Uh, it's a suspicion of foreigners and especially Westerners and their plans for, for Greeks and their civilization. Uh, the... Uh, I mean, it's no accident that one of the main slogans of Golden Dawn today is Greece belongs to the Greeks. Uh, it's no accident that the four parties as different as, as the, the Communist Party, the Independent Greeks, uh, Golden Dawn, and Syriza often issue statements on Troika policies which are almost indistinguishable. Uh, and it's no accident that all these parties criticize the government for supporting sanctions against Russia at the European level and all argued, some more decisively than others, that we should uh, have a rapprochement with, with Moscow and, and sort of move away from Brussels. Uh, and of course, this hostility is not just about geopolitics. Um, it's social as well. If you look fr from a liberal point of view, uh, policy in Greece and everything from uh, the separation of church and state to drugs policy, from gay rights to the right to worship, no matter what religion you belong to, uh, is uh, very much behind uh, Western Europe, and uh, we're only now passing laws to, to catch up, and often these laws are passed uh, against uh, hysterical and even violent uh, opposition. Uh, so, you know, there's a great deal of, of fear of change, fear of, of, of the outside uh, world, and a, a cultural climate that's rife with insecurity and, and resentment, and especially in the time of the crisis and with very large inflows of illegal immigration into the country, this has turned into a, a virulent xenophobia and a, 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 an aggression towards uh, uh, our foreign lenders and the, the Greek government who are considered their local minions. Um, and uh, I mean, it's my claim that we, if we don't become uh, a lot more open-minded uh, in this respect, uh, a lot more willing to embrace change and, and globalization uh, than we are now, then we're bound to learn the, the wrong lessons from the crisis and probably repeat uh, its mistakes. Uh, but this brings me to my final theme, mercifully, uh, which is sovereignty. And uh, the point I want to make here is that we're not entirely crazy in being suspicious of the foreigners. Uh, the handling of Greece's crisis uh, and of the wider Eurozone crisis, as Philippe can tell you much more eloquently than me, has been appalling from the start, uh, has been inept and worse. Uh, the suspicions of the Germans uh, against the European Commission that, they, that it failed to keep uh, fiscal order in the Eurozone uh, led them to move decision-making much more in an intergovernmentalist uh, direction. And that meant that especially once the French began doing not so well, it was basically the Germans calling the, sh the, the shots. 
uh, now, uh, in Greece's original bailout, the, the, the extremely high interest rates on the bilateral loans were their work. The fact that uh, there was no restructuring from the beginning was because German and also French banks were too exposed to Greece and Southern Europe and they wouldn't be able to take the, the haircut. Uh, and of course, that led to the inevitable, uh, inevitable PSI happening uh, more than a year later, uh, costing a lot more both for Greece and for its creditors, and failing in its singular purpose, which was to make the, the, the debt sustainable. And of course, the, the Europe-wide austerity that the, the Germans uh, and their allies in Brussels and Frankfurt have, have imposed, including on countries that did not have a fiscal problem, um, has contributed to the continent now being on the brink of deflation and triple deep recession, and obviously that doesn't help Greece or anyone else get out of their of their hole. So uh, you know, so we're not altogether crazy in thinking that decisions were made uh, about our lives, uh, which hurt many of us very much, uh, not in the interest of the common European good, but in the very specific interests of specific uh, national capitals in, in Europe. And I think uh, for us to be better able to fix our own, our many problems, uh, it, it would be great if there was a more solidarity on the European level, if common rules on fiscal and banking matters were uh, applied equally to all, independent of their size and uh, influence, and if uh, European officials who now have a much greater say in uh, people's lives were more accountable to the national parliaments as well, which are more... Uh, truer depositories of allegiance and, and legitimacy. Uh, that's it. Well, thank you, uh, Yanni, very much indeed. Uh, I'm sure the, the audience has clearly indicated uh, its appreciation of uh, how well you uh, describe uh, conditions in Greece. Um, I've had the benefits of reading the book before uh, this evening, so let me make one or two comments. I would like to uh, emphasize at the outset how well the book is written, and it's a very accessible text which uh, should appeal to a broad audience. And yes, I'm assuming that I'll get a percentage of any sales of the book directly after uh, this talk. Uh, let's negotiate about that. Um, and I'm in something of a quandary as to how to respond in the sense that, and this is my second point, let me make five points in response to the So the first one, if you want to make a note, is the compliment. The second one is to uh, say that I can't disagree with any of the descriptions that you give. And it may be, let's see in the Q&A, that most of us would not disagree with the description that you give uh, of Greece. In the sense that you uh, very well highlight uh, systemic conditions... Uh, indeed, no wonder you're referring to Hercules. It sounds like a multi-headed Edra, as it were, trying to tackle this problem. It seems to be um, you know, extremely difficult to, to overcome. Uh, and you make very well the, the connections between the rationality of individuals and how that can be distorted or restructured, reshaped, by the peculiarities 
of uh, the system, the system, in the sense of uh, cultural traits. You mentioned cronyism, clientelism, etc. Uh, you mentioned the the rot, as you put it uh, here, of institutions. You could uh, readily uh, acknowledge the dysfunctionalities of uh, institutions of governance in the Greek case. So these systemic descriptions, I'm sure many of us would buy into. And I read the, the book carefully and noticed that um, you said a number of defining points in terms of the argument, my third point. Uh, firstly, I read that the blame for the crisis is shared between leaders and the public. You refer very favourably to the uh, well-known comment of uh, former Minister Pangalos, Mazita Fagere. We, we, uh, we all had our snouts in the trough, as the Americans would say. We Some, all somewhat, somewhat favourably. Somewhat favorably. I, 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 I wasn't quite sure whether, you, whether I read anyone was tremendously favoured. <laughs> so I thought Pangalos might read this with some degree of pleasure. <laughs> So the first point is that uh, elites and the mass are responsible for the, for the crisis. The second point is to say that the crisis did not occur and the crisis has not been sustained because of too much neoliberalism. Rather, it's been too little neoliberalism. Thirdly, that this is a, a system which seems incapable of self-reflection or, I think as you put it at one stage in the book, a kind of self-catharsis. And fourthly, you emphasize uh, the disaffection of young people as a major threat to the social fabric. Again, each of those points I would accept and uh, readily uh, acknowledge. But my quandary is how to go beyond that in the sense that what is the central argument as to what the solution is? How do we get out? Okay, everyone is responsible. The system is interlinked in such a fashion that those who seek reform are trapped. There's a lack of space for reform. Uh, but what the solution is, I'm not quite sure. And you also make two points in the book which struck me very strongly. Firstly, one stage in the book you say you don't know whether to be optimistic or pessimistic. At some other stage in the book you say, I don't know whether to stay or go, whether to stay in Greece or leave. So trying to define what it is uh, in terms of a solution, we can all accept uh, it wasn't neoliberalism that got us into the crisis. We can all accept that the system is a multi-headed either when it comes to reform. But how do we uh, get out? And I just thought that it's relatively easy for us to accept your diagnosis. But uh, I'm clearly trying to put you on the spot to go further and tell us, fine, how do we get out? And uh, 
clearly there's an implication that one way out of the crisis, or the, the main way out of the crisis, would be to have more liberal economic policies. The basic, there is a, 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 a continuous implication of the book that the problem of the crisis is too little reform, too little liberal reform. How to achieve such a thing? I suggest two obstacles to, uh, for you to consider. Firstly, in terms of the political economy or the model of the market, if you have an economy with very few large firms and numerous micro firms, just in terms of a, a structure of the market, that doesn't easily lend itself to a constituency for liberal economics. Secondly, when it comes to questions of changing culture, because you rightly identified cronyism, clientelism, respecti, all the rest of it. Changing culture uh, is something which takes a tremendous amount of time. It's not clear how we could engineer such, such shifts, and it's not clear what kind of time period we could achieve such change. So I suppose to come to a, a conclusion, I'm really asking you to, now you've told the problems, to go to the next stage and to try to define for us what kind of solutions would be favoured from your point of view and how those solutions could be uh, achieved. The diagnosis is wonderful, uh, but this is perhaps um, a kind of drama which lacks the central actor. Hamlet without, without the prince, as it were. So what, how do we get out of this? Uh, what is the kind of way forward? Thanks. Let me ask Philip to add his comments. Thanks. Yanis and I met in Athens uh, last December. Uh, I was at the time still working for President Barroso as, as economic advisor. And I gave a presentation um, which was uh, unusually honest about the failings uh, of the EU's crisis response uh, and the plight that Greece um, was in. And uh, Yanis, after my presentation, interviewed me, and he was uh, sort of quite surprised. He said, refreshed to hear someone talking a bit of sense um, for once. Um, and then uh, it turned out that we had a personal connection as well, because his agent uh, is my cousin, uh, who is here. Um, so with both an intellectual and a personal connection, uh, in a short space of time, we've become friends. Notwithstanding that bias, uh, I can honestly say that this is an excellent book. Um, and you haven't really got a flavor of it here, because he, Yanis is focused on the analysis, which is important, 
But what the book is full of is anecdotes, in fact, sort of vignettes of um, uh, Greece, both historical and modern, which really uh, bring it uh, to life. So um, I, I highly encourage you to, to read the book to really um, appreciate um, uh, how good it is. And it's beautifully written, as Kevin said. I mean, there's one sentence that actually kind of encapsulates the whole book, which is, which is fantastic. It says, This rich, spoilt, talent-filled, violence-prone, proud, conspiracy-minded, dangerously atomized, stunningly beautiful country on the edge of the European continent was a perfect candidate for a sovereign debt crisis, yet it remains a place of boundless possibilities. I think that captures the book uh, in, in, in one sentence, uh, and um, I encourage you to read uh, more than one sentence. <laughs> now, no doubt... Greeks must take a large share of responsibility uh, for the mess that they're in, uh, as Yanis describes at length uh, a dysfunctional uh, political system uh, and the economic irres irresponsibility uh, that uh, went with that. But my contention, and in my own book here, <laughs> which you don't need to buy, but well, I encourage you to do, but don't you buy it tonight. Um, it's much it, better than mine. <laughs> that's not true. Um, it is that... Greece's supposed EU partners um, are largely responsible for the unnecessarily deep suffering, extreme suffering, uh, that Greece has suffered uh, since 2010. I mean, it was clear uh, in 2010 that Greece's debts were unsustainable. The markets thought they were, they were unsustainable. Uh, IMF officials thought they were unsustainable. Um, but in order to avoid losses um, for uh, French and German banks, which had lent uh, Greece the money with which it ha hanged itself, um, uh, a subterfuge um, was devised, a subterfuge that basically Greece was merely going through temporary funding difficulties, um, uh, and on that basis that you were going to breach the legal basis on which the, Euro the Eurozone was founded, the no bailout rule, uh, and that European taxpayers were going to lend uh, to Greece, ostensibly out of solidarity, but actually to bail out uh, French, German banks, uh, and uh, other financial uh, investors. Now, the consequence of that is that Greece has basically been thrown uh, into the modern version of a debtor's prison. Um, uh, and uh, the consequences uh, of that uh, are to be seen everywhere. I mean, the reason why you do not have a recovery in private investment is because there is a huge overhang of unsustainable debt. Uh, and in, that, in, that, in, in those conditions, even with the best will in the world, uh, you're not going to have uh, the recovery on which um, uh, the reform program uh, was predicated. Worse than that is the brutal austerity that has been imposed. I mean, absolutely brutal. Uh, and then when the calculations in the original program are completely off, i.e. they lead to even greater rise in unemployment, much deeper recession than you expect, but less fiscal consolidation as a result of that recession, you up the ante. Let's have you know, even more of it. Uh, and you know, the, the consequences of that are truly catastrophic. I mean, a, uh, a worse collapse than Germany suffered uh, in uh, the 1930s. Um, you know, the scarily high levels of unemployment uh, and youth uh, unemployment, uh, basically the loss of 15 years uh, of wage gains, um, without 
as Yanis points out, um, the necessary economic and political um, uh, reform. And in that context, while it is shocking um, that there is the rise of Golden Dawn, actually you compare that to Germany in the 1930s, and it is surprising that uh, there hasn't been an even more extreme uh, political uh, reaction uh, than that. And along the way, um, the bigger picture is that the nature of the Eurozone has changed. This was meant to be a voluntary a community, a, a voluntary association of equals, uh, and instead it has been transformed into a hierarchical relationship between creditors and debtors, with EU institutions becoming instruments for creditors, principally Germany, uh, to impose uh, their will uh, on uh, debtors. Uh, and where Europeans have been set against each other, because now that German and French and other people's taxpayers has been money has been lent uh, to uh, Greece. The, the debt relief that, that Greece so necessarily needs can only take place with losses for those taxpayers. And so they now have an incentive to resist that. So we basically, Merkel and her minions have set um, uh, Europeans against each other and in, in so doing basically are destroying uh, the basis of the European project. Now, it's not just that flawed and self-serving policies were imposed, it's the outrageous manner in which they were imposed. I mean, in effect, your elected Prime Minister, with all his flaws, Papa Andrea, was forced out of office. In effect, a coup. Uh, a, the referendum that he, was, that he pledged uh, was denied to you. Uh, and you know, with actually no legal basis, the ECB and the German government threatened to deprive you of the use of your own currency, um, uh, the euro. Uh, and doing that in the knowledge, as Yanis points out very clearly in the book, that Greeks are so desperate to be part of Europe that understandably they want their savings denominated in hard currency, that in the midst of a crisis they are terrified uh, what the consequences of being forced out of the crisis are, that in, such, in, that, in those conditions you can impose absolutely brutal, iniquitous conditions and get away with it. And that is the very opposite of the solidarity on which the European project is meant uh, to be based. So where are we now? Well, you know, we still don't have a recovery in Greece. The economy is still shrinking. Um, you have uh, this farcical thing where the government is predicting recovery this year and a strong recovery next year, uh, on, which, on what basis uh, it's not exactly clear. Um, well, there's an election coming. Um, and you have a mountain of unsustainable debt uh, weighing on your shoulders, um, which is a lever for um, Germany and the European Commission and the European institutions to continue to dictate um, uh, uh, the economic policies and other policies uh, in Greece. Uh, and that is a deeply undesirable uh, and, in my view, unsustainable uh, situation. Uh, Greece's debt needs uh, to be uh, written down. And this ought to happen uh, in a positive way uh, by um, European leaders re you know, recognising the, the situation is unsustainable, making um, a, a virtue of a necessity, calling a debt conference, as the former German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt has called for, uh, combining that with a Marshall Plan of Investment um, for Greece and Southern Europe, uh, and hopefully as a result um, uh, rescuing um, uh, the Eurozone from the, the abyss into which it's fallen, uh, and perhaps um, the political commitment uh, to the European project, uh, which has been so tragically uh, eroded. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Perhaps before we open it up, do you want to uh, respond? Respond to you in, in five themes or, or seven or seven. Your, your number. Well, I mean, uh, I'll try and, and give the, the barest outline of response. Uh, the um, uh, it's something that's obviously troubled me a lot, and uh, you know, I think obviously one of the reasons, for example, why um, the the myriad of small firms that exist uh, in many sectors uh, are not uh, constituents for liberal reform is because uh, they're in the uh, non-tradable sector, and in the non-tradable sector. It's uh, more to do with uh, rent-seeking and less to do with competition. You, you hope to get a preferential treatment from the government which will protect you for com- from competition, and therefore you know, any move uh, away from that is something you're going to oppose. Uh, how do we get from that to an economy that's based on the, on the tradable sector a lot more? That will take a, a really long time. Uh, it's obviously not easy. How will we get a public sector that's meritocratic instead of patronage-based and, and you know, uh, run by people who are mediocre but have the right party connections? Uh, I mean, one of the answers to both of these questions is that you need uh, people uh, of talent and ability, uh, uh, people of creativity who want to do interesting things to stay here in Greece, well, to go there in Greece, uh, and uh, to to stake a claim, you know, to, to start a business, to to go into the public sector and try to to make their way up or to get involved in politics or in the media. Uh, you know, obviously right now, especially the, the public sector avenue is very difficult because the money is terrible, uh, you know, and... Uh, it's still not run meritocratically, but uh, without people going in a new generation with a different approach, it's never going to happen. And, and, and in general, Greece is never going to change if people who have the right attitude either try to stay away from these sectors, which are crucial to the country working properly, because you know they say that they are the province of the parties, and I'll, I'll stay away and hope they don't bother me, or if they they take off. Uh, so you know. Uh, participate and try to make a difference from within. That's that's the main thing, I'd, I'd say. Okay, good. Let's uh, open it up for contributions, questions from the audience. Uh, yes, we have uh, people with microphones to uh, pass to you. Um, a question here. Let's take several. Yeah, I want to uh, talk about who is responsible because, in a sense, if we don't know who's responsible, we can't uh, talk about what ought to be done. I was struck by the comment about um, the tragic loss of 15 years of wage gains, which came up right towards the very end. Um, And my question is, were these things ever deserved... In other words, if Greece spent the last 15 years and more living off borrowed money, either from foolish French and German banks or from other sources, and was being bailed out by either the public sector or the private sector to maintain a standard of living which potentially it didn't deserve, who was actually allowing this? And it is interesting that the people who were allowing this were the people who were not overseeing private credit creation in Greece and it was also the people who were turning their backs on the uh, Greek statistics 
and these were the people in um, Brussels and in Germany and in those German banks and those French banks as much as anybody else. It seems to me that this was a gross failure, not just to people in Greece, but to people outside Greece, people in Brussels, people in Frankfurt, people in Paris, and they indeed do, yes, bear an awful lot of uh, responsibility. So when we're talking about people not being prepared to look into mirrors... I think there are an awful lot of people outside this room who need to look into mirrors. But it doesn't stop the fact that this was the consequence of people being given things which they were not deserving and were not capable of delivering on. Okay, thanks. Any other gentlemen here, please? Thank you. All these arguments reminded me when I was a student at this university in '75. And I was watching at the time uh, Faulty Towers, and uh, Faulty uh, had an argument with the Germans over the menu and said, wondered, who won the war anyway? And this is what, we, what I wonder today, <laughs> hearing these arguments. Uh, I have not as yet read the book, I must admit, but uh, I bought two copies, which I believe gives me the right to pose a question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just the one question. Barely one. And I believe I have a solution to the crisis, as Yanis uh, himself offered. And the solution is for Yanis and people like Yanis to stay in Greece and not out of it and um, involve themselves not only in journalism but in politics because this is the only way to get rid of these guys and have new bright guys like Yanis in the picture. Uh, it's an easy, it's a simplified answer, but I believe it's the right one. Uh, a question I have, which is not from the book because I haven't read it yet, but I will start in tonight. Stop saying that. Uh, is I wanted to ask your opinion about the latest developments in the relations between the Greek government and the IMF. Uh, isn't it, in your opinion, a dangerous game, a public relations exercise by the government for internal consumption? Thank you. Any other questions at this stage? Okay, two nice, easy questions for you to answer anyway. Um, shall I uh, take yes. one? Because the, the, the first one you might also might want to. Anyway, I'll, I'll start. We'll see. Uh, so I'll start with the last one. Uh, the. Uh, developments in the relations between Greece and the IMF are very uh, worrying. Um, the attempt, in my view, mostly out of desperate, uh, desperate effort by the government to change the narrative, uh, which is not going well for it, uh, is obviously not working out. I mean, the moment uh, they started talking about a clean exit from the bailout, uh, the yields started rising, and there were warnings from the Germans, from the Commission. Uh, Mario Draghi said he would only buy Greek assets if they were, if the Greeks remained under a program, and so on and so forth. Um, I think this is above all a sign that, uh, despite the government's claims, we have not regained our credibility. Um, and therefore, yes, I agree with you that it is a, a dangerous game uh, to play. Of course, I think the uh, the uncertainty and the and the rise in the yields is also related to the prospect of an early election. Uh, in in March. Uh, now, as to the the wage gains, whether they were deserved or not, um, I, th I won't use the word deserved because uh, it takes us into uh, moral territory, which uh, I, I'm not sure is the right territory for, for this kind of question. They were certainly unsustainable, 
and uh, the fault for allowing things to get so out of hand obviously belongs to the Greek authorities and obviously also belongs uh, both to the French and Germans who prevented the commission from taking a more invasive control of, of national budgets back in 2003 when they were the two countries to first break the stability and growth pact and to the general sense of uh, you know complacency that because yields were going down and there was easy, easy credit everywhere there was no problem with French and German banks uh, you know lending to whomever whatever for, for however long so uh, certainly blame can and should be spread very widely uh, it's just that in my book specifically I tried to look at the, the Greek aspect of it so I didn't uh, look so much at the, the role of the ECB the French and Germans but obviously Philippe covers that extremely well for example yeah, I mean, uh, you're right. The responsibility uh, for the crisis uh, is shared. Um, uh, it's partly uh, due to the uh, Greek government's overborrowing, and it's partly due to the dysfunction of reckless lending in the financial system. Um, my point is that the economic adjustment, which was inevitable um, if you run up a huge current account surplus and a huge uh, budget deficit and so on, uh, didn't have to be as brutal and as extreme, and that the brutality and extremeness of it is due to grievous policy mistakes uh, by European policymakers. And second of all, that the burden of that adjustment is not just greater and more extreme than it needed to be, but it has fallen disproportionately on wage earners. If you look at the share of wages in GDP, uh, how it has collapsed uh, since 2010, it is frightening. I mean, so you don't only have a huge fall in GDP, but even more extreme than the fall in GDP is the fall in wages. Um, and that is unnecessary and undesirable um, uh, and, uh, uh, in effect, a policy choice because the way in which um, uh, the adjustment was meant to happen uh, was uh, by cutting wages. And yet, because there hasn't been reform in Greece, basically, prices have hardly fallen at all. So you have fallen wages, not much fall in prices, uh, and as a result, uh, an absolute collapse uh, in real wages. Um, uh, and uh, so uh, uh, I say yes, the fact that 15 years of wage losses have been lost um, uh, is a policy mistake uh, and a tragic consequence of um, uh, the failure to, to uh, restructure Greece's debt the brutal austerity imposed, and the decision to pursue adjustment primarily through wage cuts. And just to add that the, I mean, the failure of prices to fall uh, is, does not just mean that the real wages collapse more. It also means that you fail in the uh, core target of the internal devaluation, which is to achieve greater competitiveness. So it's a disaster on, on so many levels. Yeah, I guess uh, my concern there would be that uh, a kind of it's the, concept, the aspect of hindsight in the sense that... It's not just hindsight. Let me open you. We sat there. Sorry, I worked, in, I worked in the OECD for a while and people used to bring home statistics which they laughed about in the year 2000. It's not just hindsight. We knew it. Um, the European Commission knew it and I quoted before about the uh, 2008 report 
on uh, 10 years of the euro, which says it's a wonderful success, until you get to the footnote somewhere down on page somewhere, which says, actually, there are a few problems of um, uh, imbalance in his um, current account, imbalances, fiscal imbalances. But we were also bloody keen on getting this European project off the ground and scooping anybody into it and showing that it worked, which meant giving those people there the same standard of living as everybody else, which is what I meant by the 15 years of um, undeserved wage increases, because this was a lie, and the Greeks were being lied to. Okay, there may, may well have been islands of uh, unusual foresight, uh, <laughs> but I think the point still holds that the received wisdom at time one contrasts with the received wisdom today. The diagnosis which is given of uh, the systemic failures domestically within Greece, the diagnosis which is given in terms of the imbalances and dysfunctionalities of the Euro regime are today part of a received orthodoxy. Indeed, what Yanis has said and what, is, what Philippe uh, has said uh, would cover a very broad part of the political spectrum. Not so many people would disagree with the diagnosis, either at the domestic or the European level, today. During the period, however, prior to the crisis, how many people uh, in Greece or how many people at the European Union uh, level were making this, those kinds of diagnoses and recognizing that this was a system which had inbuilt dysfunctionalities? Answer, not many people. There may have been isolated uh, uh, insights, but the received orthodoxy was clearly one which got us into the mess. And those who said it in Greece, at least, were, were definitely marginalized. Uh, yeah, Nietzsche and others definitely uh, marginalized. And uh, we're, we're benefiting from the fact that uh, we can speak with hindsight without responsibility at the time. How many pages, I don't know, but how many pages of Cathy Marini 10 years ago were emphasizing uh, the, the problems of, of the system and the need for, uh, for reform? Anyway, let's open it up to further contributions. Hi, uh, it's unusual for me to agree with so much that was said by Yanis and uh, Philip here. It is unusual, uh, yes, is I know. Unusual. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I just want to ask a, a quick question regarding the debt relief that uh, Philip and perhaps Yanis can answer. Uh, we all remember that, that the, the ECB refused to participate in the PSI, and some, some people would say illegally they did so. Uh, to what extent do you think that you know they can actually go back? We can actually go back and restructure the debt that they own, which is now 25 billion, but they used to be 56 billion. Or retroactively, to use the word that they used when they imposed the collective action clauses, retroactively uh, haircut the debt that they own in the books. After all, it's under Greek law. Okay. Other questions uh, here. Um, on the question of who, whose fault is it and, and who is to blame, I think I, I want to propose to you that perhaps part of the problem is that each of us has a very selective narrative of, of, of what is the, the root of the problem, what is the uh, who, who is uh, uh, to blame, and specific reading also of data, including. Uh, 
uh, on the discussion about uh, sort of the OECD data and geostrategic policy data. Uh, so, as an example, you know, Philip mentioned that wages as a set of GDP fell, of course, because unemployment went from 8% to 27%. It's not that wages fell faster than GDP, it's the wage itself fell faster than GDP. And of course, I mean, you know, this is not an, a major issue, but it, it kind of points to the fact that we can use selective facts to tell a narrative that, that, would, that would support the story, uh, but it wouldn't disprove all other possible uh, stories. The fact that the supervision was not sufficient either in Brussels or in Frankfurt uh, doesn't uh, see the political reality that, you know, what do you do if you have somebody who is not following uh, the rules? Do you kill the union or do you turn a blind eye? So to come back later at hindsight and say supervision was not good, everybody knew supervision was not good. This is not the point. It was a political arrangement. So what I'm getting at is that in a way you know, we, we kind of have to acknowledge that the Eurozone is not an optimal first best economic uh, arrangement. It's a political arrangement and in that sense has lots of subordinalities. And also Greece is not an optimal democracy or polity or society. No society is optimal, and they all have the problems. And then going back to the point that Kevin was making also in his intervention, that then under this perspective, you know, so I suggest that we should think under this perspective what is the, the, the way forward uh, in Greece. It is not to design the perfect Eurozone, or it is not to design the perfect society domestically, it is how you, we move uh, forward. And I wonder whether there is something in that that, that you can sort of reflect. Okay. Other comments? Uh, can we go first to the back and we'll come back later? Hi there. So uh, this is uh, just a quick question, really. Um, in terms of my understanding with the economy in Greece is that um, a lot of it's propped up with the work from... I mean, you're talking about uh, uh, disenfranchised youth and uh, the economy shrinking and, my and the wage going down. And my understanding is that a lot of it is due to... A lot of the work that is carried out in Greece is through migrant workers that are exploited and in some cases enslaved. And I'm just wondering if that's considered in terms of your reforms, in terms of those people in, in incorporating them in a country that you call Greater Greece and where, I don't know, moving forward, where does that, how do you consider that? Okay, good, thanks. I wonder if you want to respond to those and then we'll take uh, more questions. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, uh, migrant workers, uh, that is a, a significant problem uh, in a number of ways. First of all, uh, you know, Greece has traditionally been a country that uh, exported rather than imported labor. Uh, people left instead of, of people coming in uh, until the early 90s, basically. Uh, and there was a first wave of, of immigration into Greece in the 90s, mostly from Albania and Eastern Europe. And uh, there was a, a, a sort of a limited xenophobic reaction to that and, and uh, a number of people who were exploited then. Uh, and since 2000, you've had a, a different and much larger wave of, of people coming in. Uh, and these are people... And again, and you still have the problem, uh, I don't mean to downplay it, of, of uh, people being exploited, especially famous cases like the strawberry pickers in Manalava and, and others. Um, but the really big issue there is the fact that uh, droves of desperate people from Syria, from Somalia, from Afghanistan, from Iraq, uh, come into Greece in order to get from Greece elsewhere in Europe because 
uh, in large part because of the crisis, they know that they probably won't find work here anymore. And because of the way the system is set up on the European level, especially the, the Dublin regulation, uh, many of them, if they are able to leave Greece and find their way to another place in Europe and are, and are arrested there, are actually sent back to Greece where we really can't uh, handle the numbers and where they don't want to be. So the, I think the biggest improvement uh, that can be made there is changing uh, that regulation. Uh, there's been a change of it, but it's been very much on the margins. And uh, also on the Greek side, uh, there needs to be a, a, a tremendous improvement in the way we handle uh, immigration asylum. But there have been moves in the right direction there in the past few years the, with the creation especially of the asylum service and the, the first reception service in, in 2013. The situation before that was appalling. Now it's, it's slowly getting better. Um, so on, on your comment, uh, uh, if I understand correctly, I mean, I, 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 what caught my, my ear, first of all, was what you said about the selective narrative, because I think that's really true in Greece. Everyone in Greece uh, thinks that they are the victim of, of everyone else in Greece. Uh, you know, and and uh, I think that's because of the very widespread uh, breakdown of trust. And, and obviously that's a very hard issue to, to overcome. As to the, the ways we can slowly improve things, uh, I gather you were asking more about the European level there? Or? Well, but also in, in Greece. I mean, sorry to say, in relation to, uh, to what Kevin was saying, that you know, it's fine to identify a number of factors, mm. the cultural element, the political element, the but how economic structure. How do you move forward? One of the, 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 the small little changes that we can believe mm -hmm. can happen. Uh, Everything has to change. So we have to have a yeah, yeah. Well, so I mean, there, for example, the fact that uh, what I was talking about earlier with the asylum service, the fact that instead of being forced to, to spend two days in a queue uh, beating each other up to, to find one of the ten, to be one of the ten people each week to be able to make an asylum application, that now you have a streamlined process and you can also apply for asylum at various entry points into Greece. Uh, and the, the process is handled by. Uh, civilian personnel with expertise on the subject instead of overworked, angry police officers, uh, is a small reform which took a very long time to effect. It was very difficult. Uh, but is, is now, you know, sort of working. It's certainly working a lot better than the previous system. Uh, in each area, there are incredible rooms for, uh, there's incredible room for improvement. Uh, uh, and, you know, uh, services like that, if you have an asylum service that works, if you have a very good public hospital that does good work, they become beacons and they become examples to follow and, and they make people begin to believe uh, that maybe it doesn't have to be always in the public services so appalling for, for people who need to use them. And that's why, in particular, I said that what happened with the, the new tax authority was a disaster because it was designed to to really change things in terms of the uh, taxpayer's relation to the tax authority. And it was shown that the political class does not want to lose political control of that, which is very bad news. Um, as for Andres's question on uh, the debt relief and the ECB, which we've discussed in the past, uh, I think it would be a great idea. I think it's uh, all the reasons that have been given by the ECB for exempting itself from that haircut uh, either never applied or no longer apply, but I'm, I'm hard-pressed to believe that they would ever go for it. Let's hope they do. I don't know. Okay.
Uh, personally, I wouldn't bother because the sums aren't big enough to make a material difference and it would just cause a lot of political problems. I mean, the, the debt relief has to come through official sector debt relief from basically um, uh, the loans from uh, EU governments. Um, uh, and that's where the money has to come from. Do you now, mean, do you mean the, only, the only way, yes, the only, and the only way that you could have some kind of redistribution of the losses, we know the ownership, uh, well, we know the European banks' ownership of Greek bonds in 2009 because the first set of Greek stress tests European stress tests were taking place. The, the results weren't publicised, but but, but, we, but we but we know those figures. So ex post, you could apply um, a, a kind of special tax or, or levy uh, on those banks uh, in order to recover uh, the losses that they should have suffered uh, had the debt been haircutted uh, in 2010. That's the only way. Otherwise, you know, the losses fall on unjustly. But it's no, it's, you know, there's no reason Finnish taxpayers should should take losses. But uh, now they, it will fall on them. Um, and that's the only way to do it. In terms of wages and GDP, I mean, it is a complete myth, um, which is peddled because of the, you know, the perverted sort of German notion that wage compression is the road to growth, um, that wages were too high uh, in Southern Europe and in Greece in particular in the pre-crisis period. I just looked up the stats. If you look at wages, a share of GDP fell from 64.5% in 1998 to 60.4% in 2007. So the reason why uh, Greece uh, had a huge current account uh, deficit uh, and a problem exporting is not because wages were too high, it's because costs were too high, it was other costs. Uh, and therefore, if you focus all your activities on pushing wages down, and now it's down to nearly 50% of GDP, uh, and um, you're, you're imposing the burden of adjustment uh, disproportionately uh, onto workers, in effect, you're trying to create uh, a mini-Germany. Um, uh, and the German model doesn't work uh, that well for Germans. Germans are no better off than in 1999. It certainly doesn't work uh, for Greece and shouldn't be applied uh, to Greece. Okay, cool. thanks. Uh, yes, there was several questions. You said those. In the middle of your pieces. Perhaps if we... This has to be the last round, so let's make uh, a number of questions together and then uh, this one. Listening to the, you know, the really bleak situation in which the country is at the moment, uh, it seems to me that this is clearly a political... Uh, issue. This is, a, this is a problem that needs to be addressed politically. Uh, and what I mean by this is that at the moment you have the people in Greece who have suffered, who do not want to abandon Europe, who do, want, do not want to go out of the Euro, and who do not know who to vote for. And in their desperation, they vote for parties like the thugs of uh, Golden Dawn, or for Kamenos, or for uh, Syriza, who up to three or four years ago did not even have more than 4% of the electorate, and they do not know where to turn. And there are a lot of young people now who uh, are so disaffected, and clearly what needs to be done is for, for the people to find a new uh, aim and a new direction or where they would put their political support. Mm -hmm. Sorry, and I think the question. I think that John, it's a suggestion actually, should write a new book. A <laughs> book about how 
<laughs> Hercules should act. And that book should become a political platform. And that should mobilize the big deal. I will just finish by saying... No, that's fine, that, but thank you. We'll, we'll have to leave that uh, exaltation uh, hanging in the room. Take the, uh, thank you. Um, well, the question, is, the question is, are you trying to find any similarities with the other countries of the periphery? Because there are lots of common themes there and lots of common problems. And I suppose the root of the problem is the same in all periphery countries, which are under a program now or semi-program. So, in the, uh, well, I mean, the root is all this reform resistance these countries have shown for many years. And what happened with the introduction of the euro was that uh, instead of uh, uh, losing the foreign, I mean, the exchange rate uh, uh, tool in order mm -hmm. to improve competitiveness whenever things were going extremely wrong, uh, and I mean, this was at the uh, initial thought of, of the euro that, uh, well, the countries that have problems uh, and that they need reforms, uh, maybe when they lose this exchange rate uh, tool, uh, of, com of improving competitiveness, then they will have to proceed with reforms. What happened in this case in all the peripheral countries is that uh, uh, instead of being pressed to proceed with reforms, things were even more relaxed in the sense that the markets mispriced the risk. So countries as uh, difficult as Greece were having a you know, spread when borrowing, I mean, the sovereign was having a spread when borrowing at, uh, I don't know, 20 basis points with respect to the German uh, sovereign. Uh, and that made this, fl I mean, uh, uh, flooding of funds coming into these countries. And this took all the pressures from the need for reforms. So we spent another 10 years or another eight years without any pressure from reforms, not only without pressure uh, for reforms, but even you know, with a lot of liquidity for providing higher salaries and, you know, all this, I mean, pleasing everybody and all that. So, I mean, there is a common thing there in all the peripheries. So I'm just wondering if you have thought about it at all and uh, if you think that uh, that could provide some, you know, better understanding of, of the whole situation. Mm -hmm. Good, thank you. Uh, other comments uh, here, please, sorry. I'm sorry, uh, turning back to the question of solutions, which I really do believe must drive this discussion, I don't think we've discussed the diaspora at all. To what extent can they play a role in the Greek recovery? Can they play a big role, or is their role not obvious, not, not possible? Okay. And the gentleman in front of you. Oh, okay. Any other questions or any comments before we ask Yanis to respond? Going, going, yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, on the role of the diaspora, yes, absolutely. I think uh, it's uh, untapped potential. Uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, there have been, I, I, I frequently had people, especially f uh, from the Greek American community, who've told me various horror stories about how, you know, the prime minister. Uh, 
of Greece went to the States and he met with various uh, very important figures and he said, we want to do this, we want to do that, and they were all very excited and keen to help. And then there was absolutely no follow-up. So, you know, the next time the next prime minister came, uh, he met with lower-down figures, and then the next time further lower down and, and, and nothing happened. So, so it's definitely the case that uh, the Greek government should do more, and not just at the level of the of the top-level meetings, but, but to, to follow up and try to to achieve things, and I'm sure you know, uh, there's there's both the money and the willingness to help. Uh, there's oftentimes I found uh, the question of what the best way is to help. I've seen that a lot with the Hellenic Initiative in the States. Uh, they, they they're still sort of discussing whether they they want to help through charity or through somehow getting a private equity fund to actually invest in businesses. And they're you know they still haven't settled that. Um, on the similarities with the, the European periphery, obviously there are many uh, similarities between us and, for example, Portugal, uh, to an extent, uh, Italy and Spain. Uh, and I think it's very much the case that in the years, uh, the early years of the Eurozone, uh, people either mistook the low interest rates as a, a sort of, you know, a thumbs up from, from the markets and, and a a sort of a recipe for complacency, or they just didn't want to go through the political cost of, of, of reforms and thought, you know, why should I, since there's no, no one's pressuring me to do it. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think we should be careful not to lump the countries uh, together too much, because uh, it was that kind of mistake that led to the, to the German diagnosis of the crisis as applying in the, you know, the same to everyone, which led the to very heavy austerity being imposed even in countries that did not have a fiscal problem and only acquired the fiscal problem uh, because European authorities forced them, for example, to, to guarantee uh, the, the bondholders, for example, in Ireland. So obviously similarities and obviously, you know, uh, huge mistake, mis- mispricing risk, and politicians were very happy to ignore the problem so long as the markets ignored the problems. But... Uh, uh, I still think there are important differences between different countries, and it wasn't the, the, not the, we shouldn't have imposed the same recipe on on all of them. Uh, I'm going to ignore my father's question and <laughs> talk to him after the. Philip, any last comments quickly? Yeah, just echo that point. The, 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 clearly, there are similarities across southern European countries, but. Uh, the false notion that they are all suffering from a crisis due to fiscal profligacy, um, which was the basis of the crisis response. I mean, complete nonsense. If you look, um, there was obviously a huge rise, or large rise in public debt in Greece. There was a very small one, or small one in Portugal. There was a small one in, in Germany. Um, but in the other crisis uh, countries, Italy started with a high-level public debt, which fell during the 10 years before the crisis. Uh, you know, and Ireland and Spain had ridiculously low debt uh, and, and, and budget surpluses. So, yes, there are similarities, but there are also important differences. Okay, thank you. I'm sure we've whetted your appetites. Remember that as you exit the lecture theatre, not only can you buy the book at a remarkably discounted price, must must uh, buy. But, uh, apparently this is a must buy, uh, but also you're invited to join us for a wine reception. 
I'm sure we haven't, uh, I'm sure Yanis has not uh, satisfied your appetite. So for those of you who are up at breakfast next uh, tomorrow morning and uh, listen to the BBC Radio 4 Today programme, then you'll be able to hear an interview with uh, Yanis uh, on the BBC tomorrow morning. So can you please join me then in thanking uh, our speaker?